Well, good morning. It's such a privilege to be with you. I want to just welcome our, any guests that we have here, some guests I see, and then welcome our guests online, join us online, and also welcome our Destiny Table in New York with us. So glad to have you guys and so glad what the Lord's doing. I'm honored to have the chance to preach this morning. We take the first uh, 40 days of the year and kind of give it back to the Lord by focusing just on the, the values that we um, have placed, that we sense God is calling us to as a family. And the thing about core value, priorities can change, core values never change. And so it's important that we understand that these five elements will never change. And they've, uh, before I even got here, this was worked into a, a great little statement, and I don't know if you know, but how hard that is. <laughs> how hard it is to really encapsulate in core values in a, in a phrase or a sentence. And uh, I, I love ours as our destiny family. It says, we are outrageously loving people who passionately pursue the Lord with irrationally giving lifestyles as we consistently submit to God's desires and effectively disciple others to do the same. Now, what I would like is I would just like us to say that together. Would you mind putting that uh, on the screen for us? Let's just take a moment and say that together. We are outrageously loving people who passionately pursue the Lord with an irrationally giving lifestyle as we consistently submit to God's desires and effectively disciple others to do the same. Amen. I really think if we could embody all of those five, if we could go deeper in all those five, we would be, it would be remarkable. And we would be a remarkable people and family, which we are, by the way, but even more remarkable. If you want more information on it, you can actually go to destinyokc.com, uh, our website, and underneath there, under the messages section tab, you'll see core values. You can click on it, and there'll be a video for each one of these, a real short video that Pastor Lawrence has done for each one of these, if you want some more information about them. But my, um, my uh, day is ir irrationally giving. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you take them out to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to return to a passage that I actually preached on a, almost a year ago to the day um, here, but it's just one of the best passages I know of to kind of unpack when it comes to what uh, the Bible teaches us about giving. So if you have your Bibles, it'll be 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 6. Paul writes, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. By the way, in Greek, that's actually the word for blessing. Whoever sows blessing will also reap blessing. It's interesting. Anyway, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor as righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to your word and we ask that your word would actually read us, that it would go deep into us. Lord, I pray not for the opinions of men, not for a stylish or clever message. I pray that we would come to know what's true and to know it better and more intimately and more personally, and that we would come to trust it even deeper. 
Lord, I just pause and I, I pray for our children and, and D-Kids and D-Kids Junior. Lord, we ask you that you would give our children a heart to know you, to walk in your ways, that you would settle them into your love. They would know how deeply they're loved by you. And Lord, that you would give them joy unspeakable and full of glory. And that our, our children would see your beauty and want to dwell in your house all the days of their lives. Bless those who are working with them, who serve them. And Lord, in here, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are trying to pack an umbrella into a cardboard tube. And as you're trying to pack this umbrella, or let's just say you're watching someone else because you would never do this. Let's just put it that way. You're watching someone. Someone's trying to pack this umbrella with the handle first. And even though the handle may be straight, there's a problem, and that is all of the little metal tips of the struts of the umbrella begin to kind of hit and catch. And no matter how much you kind of twist the umbrella, you could force the umbrella, you could get it in there if you had to, you may risk damaging the umbrella and damaging the cardboard tube. Or you could just simply turn the umbrella around and slide it in tip first into the cardboard tube, and it would fit quite easily, quite naturally, even if it wasn't tightly wound. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we begin to talk about what happens in this chapter. Because the Apostle Paul has a concern that he mentions in verses 1 through 5 that I didn't read. Paul has a concern. The Corinthians have promised him support in the form of an offering. They have promised him, the church at Corinth has promised to give Paul an offering. This is, uh, helps pay for his travels. This helps pay um, just evangelism, preaching, church planting, encouraging the churches. It also is used to give to the churches when they're in famine or a pandemic to help them. And he sends somebody ahead with this letter because part of his concern is they'll not have the offering ready. And he doesn't want the, the offering to have to be extracted from them. He wants them to be able to collect it and give it generously. So here's a fundamental deal, uh, uh, question that we have here that I think is really important. We have the Apostle Paul dealing with the hesitation of obedience in the church at Corinth. And we want to ask the question, how does he handle it? How does he handle the fact that there may be a hesitation in the saints in order to obey? And what you're going to find is instead of trying to force uh, obedience like the umbrella into the tube with, with manipulation and coercion, with appeals to his position and authority or with, or with trying to emotionally move them about how, what great things he does. He doesn't do that. He's simply trying to turn their perspective around so that giving and generosity would be as natural and easy because they see something about God. Paul addresses our hesitation in obedience theologically. Now, don't get, over, don't get concerned about that. Theo, meaning God, uh, ology or logic being to study or to think. It simply means to think about God. Theology means simply to think and dwell on, muse on God. And so part of what he's helping us understand is that in order, if we have an obedience issue, we really have a trust issue. And trust issues arise from the fact that we don't accurately or clearly or truthfully see who God really is. And so Paul sets out to handle this hesitation in obedience, not by appeals to his position. Just to be frank, Paul has no problem appealing to his apostleship when he needs to. 
And when he appeals to it, it's almost always in the same context. This is when people challenge whether or not he's preaching the truth revealed in Christ. That's when he appeals to his apostleship. He doesn't appeal to it when it comes to the church's offering. That's important. He doesn't try to force it, coerce it. If there's anybody in the world that could tell the church of all the great things he does in his ministry, it's the apostle Paul. All of the churches he's planted, all of the people he's seen saved, how he's, he's blazed a path in a whole new area, west. He doesn't mention any of that. Because he knows that for obedience to be consistent and faithful, to rise naturally out of who we are, we must see God in a certain way. And that's where this apostle starts. That tells us something very important. It tells us then that Christian growth, again, is rarely about adding new truths to your life, per se. It's really not about that, per se. We'll have some experiences with new truths. It's really about going deeper into the truths that God has already revealed and going deeper in them into a place where we experience them at a different level. We experience them at such a different level, it may seem new to us, but it was the same truth, just made deeper. God loves you. You can hear that a thousand times. But anybody had the experience where you like encountered God's love and now you're like, now I really know God loves me. <laughs> I thought about how much God loves me. Now I know God loves me, right? Well, let me tell you, there's more to be had in that experience with God's love for you. We want to go deeper into the truths that God's revealed. That's where Christian growth lies. Because as we go deeper, we're learning to trust. We're learning to rely on it. We're learning to have confidence in who God has revealed himself to be. Does that make sense? So let's dive in is how Paul teaches us to do this. As we dive in, I want you just to consider and keep this in your mind that literally the word believe, uh, pistos in Greek, literally means, um, we, we, it, it's, the, it's a verb of faith. But we don't have the word faithing. We don't faith, we don't, no one's faithing something. So we change it in English to believing. That fits more of our deal. The problem with it is, is we kind of get, belief can mean something like mental assent to something, like you just assume that it's true. But belief fundamentally in the New Testament language means there's a readiness to act on it as if it's the case. That's why the writers never separate belief from action. They can't imagine someone, it's, it's, the way, it's like going to a mechanic, right? And he, the mechanic says, hey, this is what's wrong with your car. It's, really, it's gonna blow up when you leave here. And you say, uh, no, thank you. I think you're just trying to cheat me, right? And then later I talk to you about it. And you say, well, I really do trust my mechanic. <laughs> no, you don't. If you really trusted your mechanic, you'd think the car would blow up and you would act accordingly. Belief is the readiness to act. And you don't make something true by believing it. And that's why it's very important that our belief is connected to what's true. Because we have the readiness to act as if it were the case. And when we find ourselves believing without acting, what we can say is we're mentally assenting to something. What we need is a deeper realization of that truth so we can come to believe it in a way in which we act upon it. We act with confidence and relying upon it as if it was the case. So let's take a look at what Paul does here in uh, this passage. The first thing we see in verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul, first of all, appeals to this principle built right into nature. We may call it natural law. Paul says, listen, you're going to reap what you sow. And not only are you going to reap what you sow, you're going to reap to the measure that you sow, right? Sparingly and bountifully are measures. So it's not just that you're going to reap what you sow, but you're also going to reap to the measure that you sow, which is an interesting uh, idea. Now, here's what's important about this is um, in Galatians chapter six, I'm just gonna quote it, but in verse seven uh, through nine, uh, Paul says, um, 
Paul says something like this. Do, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. To the one who sows to the flesh, from the flesh shall reap corruption. To the one who sows to the spirit, from the spirit shall have eternal life. Do not grow weary in your well-doing. Do not grow weary in your well-doing. Very interesting. Don't grow weary. Why, he says in that passage. Because God will soon, you will soon reap what you sow. In other words, listen, let me just break it down this way. You will teach someone deception. If you teach them, they do not reap what they sow. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he must reap. And here's the good news. Everybody say, hey, what's about the gospel? Here's the great news. Mercy is when God brings a drought on all the bad seeds you sowed. <laughs> but it didn't mean it wasn't coming. <laughs> so mercy, God can act in a way that can violate natural law, but the way we live in the, the natural law you appeal says you're gonna reap what you sow and you're gonna reap to the measure that you sow it. And you deceive, we deceive our children if we teach them they can act in a certain way and have no consequence. That's not the way the world actually works. You're deceived if you think you can be selfish and, and wicked and rude and, and evil in relationships and have some deeply meaningful and profound intimate relationships. We're deceived if we think we can lie in relationships and have some meaningful, loving relationship. We're deceived. But that passage is really not just teaching about sowing and reaping. It's actually trying to say God is not mocked, right? Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will reap, but it jumps down. So don't grow weary in your well-doing, for you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. In other words, it mocks God when you sow good seed and don't reap good things. And God will not be mocked. So don't grow weary in all your good doing, all your good seed sowing, because God will not be mocked, and he will make sure you reap a harvest. So don't give up. You see, Paul's, Paul's appeal to them to not give up is not just sowing and reaping. It's that there's a God behind the sowing and reaping who will not be mocked and will vindicate. That's very important in this passage, in Galatians, to connect with this passage. So we see that the measure you use is a measure back to you. And that's very important because we, we often think about sowing and reaping. We don't think about measures. Just to give you an example, would you rather have, a, would you rather have the cash from a 10% return on 100,000 or the cash from a 4% return on 500,000? Let me just put it, 10% return on 100,000 is only $10,000. 4% return on 500,000 is $20,000. Ooh, that's gonna be fun, mix those all up. In other words, listen, it's not about the amount of return per se. Everybody gets stuck in rate of returns. It was about the amount that was invested. Those who sow sparingly, reap sparingly. The amount they put in is the amount that's returned back to them. Jesus said the same thing. Give it, it shall be given unto you. Pressed down, shaken together, shall man give back to you. For the measure you use, it shall be measured back to you. So two questions arise. What are you sowing, and how much are you sowing it? What are you sowing, and how much are you sowing it? But then Paul adds a little help with us by giving revelation about God. There's a, very important in the scriptures. There's a difference between when a, when a when an, a writer of the scripture appeals to a natural law like sowing and reaping, and then when he adds revelation about who God is behind it, right? So here's the revelation about who God is behind it. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Why? What's the revelation? For God loves a cheerful giver. 
He reveals us something about God. God actually loves people who give cheerfully. Uh, It's where we get our English word hilarious. Joyful givers. He loves joyful givers. And he tells us a real secret about cheerful giving. That we give uh, and our, our giving can be cheerful when it's aligned with the core of who we are in our hearts. So in other words, you reap what you sow, that's out there, natural law, don't, don't forget about that. But now he adds to it something that God actually wants you to give what you've decided in your heart, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now in other words, there's many reasons people may practice sowing and reaping. If you find out you reap what you sow and the amount you sow is the amount you get, you may start sowing a bunch in order to just get a bunch. But Paul says, that won't make you a cheerful giver. It might get you some return but it won't make you joyful. Joyful giving is not just sowing in order to reap. Cheerful giving is when you sow because it's in your heart to do so. You were generous from within, from the depths of your heart. It's alignment with your heart. Your actions on the outside, your generosity, your giving, your sowing is in line with who you are on the inside. And God loves that. Now, here's the thing. We have to wrestle through. I think it's a... It's difficult for us sometimes to, to kind of work through this, but it, it brings up a basic question, isn't it? What are some reasons why people might give if it's not in their heart to give? Well, Paul mentions two. He mentions reluctancy and compulsion. He mentions two. Reluctancy, a reluctancy occurs when, we, when one gives what they are not confident that they desire to give. And they may do so because they don't trust the other, maybe they don't trust the other person, but the person keeps bothering them, or maybe they feel that they have to, or, or, um, or, or they're just reluctant to give. And Paul says, listen, you can, don't give that way because that's not a cheerful giver. He wants you to give what you've decided in your heart so that your generosity can be aligned with your heart so that you might experience the depth of God's joy. So don't give reluctantly. But then he says, don't give under compulsion. Compulsion means when you feel like you almost have to in order to try to avoid something or obtain something that you otherwise think's out of reach. So a compulsion would be giving to make sure God doesn't get you. A giving under compulsion would be giving because you, you fear the wrath of God or giving because you, you have no other way of seeing how you're gonna make ends meet so you dump a bunch of money into Jesus hoping he gives it back in time. That's compulsion. Like he's an S&P 500. That's compulsion. Give because it's decided in your heart. But now do you see a problem that happens with these ulterior motives of reluctancy and compulsion? If I'm gonna reap what I sow, and not only that, I'm gonna reap to the measure that I sow it. But I'm only supposed to give what I've decided in my heart in order to have joy. What if I don't have a lot of generosity in my heart? (laughs) Then if I just stayed aligned with my heart, I'm not gonna sow very much. Everybody tracking? Now we got a problem to reconcile. What do I do? And Paul's answer to this question is to help people see God more clearly. What if I do if my heart is not generous? And he turns and says, let's look at God. Let's look at God. Again, he doesn't command them. He doesn't appeal to his apostolic authority. He doesn't try to coerce them or manipulate them or move them emotionally. He simply appeals to God, and this is what he says, and God is able. 
God is able. At the heart of a cheerful giver is this realization that my generosity is decided in my heart, but not decided in my heart based on whether or not I have enough resource. The cheerfulness that what I decide in my heart is given out of a realization that the God of all creation is able to move around in the ordinary human affairs of life and provide for me what I need when I need it. So if it's not in your heart to be generous, we do not have a very clear picture of God. Obedience issues are trust issues, and trust issues arise when we don't seek God clearly. God is able, and, he, and he, he's, he's confident, and uh, our confidence in God's good nature then, our confidence in God's willingness to, to see my little life and be actively involved in it is centrally, is deeply connected to my generosity. In other words, our generosity even may reveal to some degree our confidence in God. And that is why, for example, the fundamental question of living generous to be a rationally giving lifestyle, the fundamental question is not do you have enough resource to be generous, the fundamental question is do we trust God that he's able to provide? And that's why tithing, for example. Tithing is, is a practice. Well, let me put up. This is why tithing never requires you to give something you don't have. It requires you always to give out of what you do have. Because tithing is a practice of reminding myself that even what I do have has come from God. Yeah. It's not trying to get necessarily more for the future. It's trying to remind myself that everything that's come has been because of his good and faithful care of me. Right. Yes, I go to work. That's, we work, we gotta cooperate with God, right? We get up, we go to work, we do things like that. But the point is, all of that resource though has come because God is good and he cares. So I give, I tithe, not, not simply to to get, gain more, I tithe because out of my heart is the generosity that God has been faithful to me. And that he'll, if he's been faithful to me so far, he'll be faithful to me in the future. That is why it's never an accurate statement, I'll tithe when I have more. No, you won't. Or maybe, maybe you will, but let me put it this way. What that's really saying is, I don't have enough resource yet to obey God. But if you're not obeying God, then the question is, who then are you obeying? Jack Taylor once said, an idol is anything you've got to ask permission from in order to obey God. You need per permission from your checkbook to obey God. You need permission from your bank statement. Does how the market acts determine your generosity? I just want you to know this is as comfortable for me as it is for you. <laughs> so just take a deep breath. <laughs> I can feel the air move. Or get sucked out. So not only do we see that God is able, but underneath that is a real question that haunts all of us. And underneath that, okay, God is able, but is God willing? Is God willing to provide for someone like me? I get it, he'll provide for Jesus. He's like Jesus. I get it, he'll provide for the Apostle Paul. He's like the Apostle Paul. Will he provide for little old me? And Paul knows enough about human psychology to know he goes right to the voices that fuel our insecurities. Am I worthy? And Paul's answer will surprise you. His answer is this, not only is God able, but implied in that able is God is willing. And not only that, it will bring God glory when you learn to live relying upon his provision in your life. God is glorified as we take confidence and rely upon him. Now I'm not talking about presumption, right? 
like the guy who waded out into the water, left a note saying God told him to walk on water and he drowned. Like at some point when the water's like over your nose, you just go, maybe I miss God and you go back, right? So I'm not talking about presumption here. I'm not talking about you got this idea of doing something crazy in order to you know, show your confidence in God. What we're talking about is living naturally out of our hearts that's in awe and gratitude of God and living generously. But not only is God able, but God is willing to do it and he's willing to do it for you because it also brings him glory when you live relying upon him. God is glorified in that. Now I need to say a couple things here, some disclaimers, <laughs> some parenthetical statements, a couple things. One is God is not asking anybody to live in poverty. I know people, God is not asking us to live in poverty, God is asking us to live in trust, okay? Now I know some people that need poverty to trust God. Because <laughs> the moment they get stuff, they no longer trust God, they just trust their stuff. Now that may be true for certain people, but that says more about the person's heart than about the, the evilness of possessions. Nor am I saying God wants to make you rich. What I'm saying is God wants you to live in faithful confidence of him. And he will take care of the details. But we live responsible, we live in stewardship, we live faithful, but we also live in irrationally giving a lifestyle to the world because it's quite rational from inside the kingdom and that is we see a God who's been faithful and kind. And then we see our life caught up in his purposes as we'll talk about in just a moment. So let's talk about what is God promising here. I often joke with people, but when people say they're claiming God's promises, I want to say, look, if God actually hasn't said he promises it, he doesn't have to come through. You might want to get the promise right. Does that make sense? Right? If I promised you $100 and you're waiting on $100,000, there's a bit of a difference between those two things uh, and what I promised. So we need to just really dive into what God's promised here and take a look at it. Look at what he's promised. God is able to make all grace abound to you that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God promises sufficiency. God promises that you will have all that you need. He does not promise big barns, all stored up. Wouldn't you love that? He doesn't promise a 10-year supply. He doesn't promise enough for your retirement. He promises that you'll have all sufficiency at all times in all things. He doesn't promise that you'll necessarily have it all stored up. This is actually the way Jesus lived, right? Foxes have holes, he said. You know what I mean? Like he, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Well, actually, the Son of Man had every place to lay his head. God wanted him to lay his head. I feel like that was a good point. But my point is, does he have the promise of sufficiency here? God's not promising. Jesus' statement about the, uh, consider the birds, right? Luke 12 and Matthew uh, 6. Consider the ravens. The whole point of that story was that they didn't build barns. They work, they go out and find, they scrap, they build nests, they have offspring. They, they labor and God takes care of them, God provides for them. They just don't build barns. That was the whole point. I'm not, again, I'm not talking about being irresponsible here. What I'm saying is the promise that God has made to you is that you would have all sufficiency, all things at all times when you need them. For a purpose, as we'll look in a minute, for the good works he's called you to. But listen to me, if you have all sufficiency at all times in all things, guess what that means? That means you have abundance. If at no moment in my life I'm ever without what I need, no matter what I'm going through, I have plenty. I have plenty. 
I am taken good care of. That's the promise that God makes, that Paul tells us that God is making, the promise of sufficiency. But this promise is connected to God's divine purpose. And God's divine purpose is that he's created you with good works to do. In other words, God is not going to bless you so that you can go out and buy all the materialistic things the materialistic world tells you you need. God is going to make sure you have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that you can accomplish the good work he's called you to. And here's the good news. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that God has created us with these good works in mind before we were even created. He's made us. What this means is that your little life and all of your resources, my little life and all of my little resources, have been caught up in God's divine plan, his unfolding plan to make all things new. Now let me ask you a question. What are you doing with your resources that's more important than that? Are you telling me having a little more in a savings account is worth not cooperating and participating with God in his unfolding plan. We are created with these purposes in mind and God will supply what we need. So at the heart of the cheerful giver is a vision of God as good, as able, and willing to arrange the circumstances of my life to supply what I need, which enables me to live cheerfully even irrationally to the world, a generous or giving lifestyle accomplishing his purposes in the earth. Look, I don't really understand how this works, but look, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, I'm gonna make your descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand uh, on the sea, right? Sand on the shore. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is what I promise you. And then later he asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. You remember that? Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain, he raises the knife and God stays his hand. Right? And the angel says, don't harm the lad, which makes it sound like the angel's Irish for some reason. Right? But don't harm the lad, so he stops. And then God provided the ram and the thicket. And then God says this to Abraham, Abraham, because you, because you have not withheld from me your one and only son, I will fulfill my promise to you. Your descendants shall be, and he tells them all the rest. Now, wait a minute. In Genesis 12, he promised that. But now it's because of Abraham's obedience. I don't understand the mystery of this. What I'm trying to tell you is somehow in God's infinite wisdom, he has managed to integrate your obedience into accomplishing his eternal purposes. And your life now and your obedience is not about whether or not you have enough in the bad column or good column when you stand before him in heaven. Your obedience is not about checking things off a list or making sure I, I, I don't miss out on my blessing. Now your obedience is about, I get to partner with God in his unfolding plan of seeing all things made new. That my little life can now be a part of a deeply eternal purpose of seeing God redeem and reconcile the world back to himself. Again, what are you doing with your life and resources that's more important than that? Paul even says in this passage that by the Corinthians' generosity, many people will be brought to worship God. Imagine one day being in heaven, and not only are people going to go and thank Jesus for saving them, the Apostle Paul for preaching them, but the church at Corinth is going to get credit for having given and supported Paul in his ministry. Paul says, many will be brought to worship and be thankful to God because of your generous giving. Just imagine that for a moment. So, we reap what we sow, but God wants us to align with our hearts, so our heart is a big issue. 
uh, we have to work through. And Paul, the way Paul deals with our heart is by helping us see a vision of God as good and faithful, his promise of sufficiency, and the, the purpose of this abundance and his unfolding plan. So our generosity then can reveal our confidence in God. Dallas Willard once remarked, the reason why, it, it, let me put it this way, in, in uh, the first mention of faith in the book of Matthew is connected directly to God providing for them, right? Disciples were out of whack about some bread and Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, right? First mention of faith has to do with God providing for their physical needs. And Dallas Willard once wrote, um, faith, uh, salvation, faith, for, uh, faith in God for salvation is connected to faith in God for provision because if I can't, how am I going to trust Jesus for my eternal salvation if I can't trust him for a sandwich? Just think about that. We're going to stand before God with eternity on the line. And we trust him in that moment, but we don't trust him to provide for us in this little life. I would think through that. All right, well, I'll move on. Okay. So look, we all have had moments in our lives. I, uh, I'll tell you a good story and I'll tell you a bad story on, on my behalf. Once I had a... Um, I wanted to try to find stories uh, different than tithing because there's a difference between tithes and offerings. Those are two separate things, right? And so I remember one time God, I felt like the Lord told me to give a car away. It was a car I had paid off, just recently paid off and uh, was still fairly new. And I felt like the Lord told me to give it to this family I knew was in need. And I went to somebody in my life who knew me really well and who I, I, I really wanted their input. And I said, look, I, I have this um, sense to give my car away to this family, but I can't tell if that's just me or God. And the person said to me, when have you ever wanted to give a car away? <laughs> it's brilliant. Like, let's think about that. Come on now. And he was right. You know, isn't that interesting? The first kind of moment we try to hesitate our obedience is about whether or not we heard God. <laughs> you guys are looking at me so spiritual like you've never had this problem. And um, I managed to, to obey God in that moment and I gave it to the church. The church was able to give it to the family without them knowing who it came from. And I happened to be in a class with this family and seeing their joy and worship and the way the children cried that God had provided, the way the mom wept at God's goodness. And I'm totally fine with God getting the credit. For Jesus said what's done in secret will be rewarded in eternity. I'm good with that. But look, I gave a car away. I just want you to know, I didn't get a newer model free in return. I didn't sew a Buick and get a Lexus. You know what I got? I got a heart that was alive in God. I got joy unspeakable and full of glory that I got to see his kingdom come and his will be done in a family's life who desperately need it. I got to see a family on the verge of collapse because they couldn't get to work and all the rest start to work hard and work their way out of a pit that they got in at no fault of their own. I had to pay for the next car and make the payments on the next car. Do you see my point? We sow and there is reaping, but we don't sow in order to reap. We sow because we have a vision that God is good. Now, another one. Oh, recently, um, 
um, ha have uh, some of my income being commissions-based, it's kind of hard to figure out how you're going to tithe on it. And um, I had a moment where I um, thought I had given what I thought I'd give it, that I got the report back going, oh, wow, that's not quite, that's less. And I remember putting it before the Lord and saying, you know, how do I respond to this? Because my first thought was, oh, I need to pay up. But look at me, tithing's not a payment. It's worship. You don't owe God a song in that sense. I'm not in his debt to give him a song. I'm in his debt for everything I have. <laughs> and that happens to erupt in a song. Are you with me? So now the question was, do I go back and quote unquote catch up out of some duty and compulsion? How do I respond? And my response was one of trying to say, Lord, I, this is what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it out of a heart that overflows. I'm going to catch it as a heart that overflows on the fact that you have provided this for me. And I didn't see this much coming. So thank you. This is not about a percentage. This is not about working. It is about a heart that's filled with gratitude. Well, look, I need to begin to land the plane. So let me just talk to you a little bit about the practice of a cheerful giver. One is we've talked about tithing, but listen, what tithing does is tithing frees us and protects us from the lure of a world that tells us we have, to, we have to get our own security by our own strength. That just get enough possession so you can secure your tomorrow, which robs us of trusting God today. So one is tithing helps us push back. God, what I have has come from you, and what I'll have in the future will come from you. So tithing protects us from that. It is a constant practice, if you would, of remembering that our provision has come from God and it will continue to come from God. And so we, we, we give a tithe as a way of reminding ourselves of God's faithful care of us and therefore by his faithful care in the future. So here at Destiny, we try to make tithing very simple. We, you can go to the Destiny OKC uh, website, destinyokc.com. You'll see a big square in the corner that says give. You can click on it. It will send you to a secure site where you can give uh, as the Lord leads you to. You can download the Destiny OKC app. At the bottom will be a big heart that says give. You click on it, it'll take you to the same platform the website will. Or you can text give to the number on the screen, 405-584-5767, and that will send you a link, and that link will take you to the same place. Now look, I'm not saying any of this because Destiny needs your money. I'm saying this because God wants your heart. The goal is not to grow offerings. The goal is to have a people that is free from idols. And who can worship the Lord out of the generosity of their hearts and what he's done for them. There are a lot of people that will teach and motivate people to give in different ways. Here, it is an act of worship, and that's where it stays. Now, there's also... Um, other ways to give. There's other ways to be, to be generous. And that's why I want to talk. A tithe would be something we give out of what God has provided as a way of remembering that he's been faithful and that he will be faithful in the future. But then there's offerings. Offerings is a way in which I sow into things I see God doing that I want to be a part of and feel led that God is asking me to be a part of. And I want to put things into use. I want to sow some things that God's given me to see God do other things. But not only just money. Offerings can be your time. It can be your, your, uh, your uh, it can be food. And for example, hospitality to people is a way of giving an offering. 
hospitality where I open my house and I, I have a meal at around the table and I'm sitting there to dialogue and engage. It is a way of giving. It is a way of, of living a generous life to others. So we have uh, both the destiny table and things like that that we are, we are wanting to see um, us really dive into and, and have hospitality back as a genuine way of engaging with people and uh, showing them love. But not only that, ladies, we have a women, our women event this year coming up will be one in which the women will meet in different homes at the same time or in the same general time. And what, one of the things that we're looking for is ladies who would be interested in hosting other ladies at their house. And so um, Pastor Tracy will be in the back underneath the TV. If Ladies, if that interests you, interests you, you can talk to her after the service. My point is, though, there's different ways to be generous. Hospitality is one. Let me ask you a question. Here's another one. You can be generous with your words. If somebody was to decide whether or not you were a generous person only listening to what you said, would they think you were generous or not? Do our words impart grace and bless people? Or do our words bring um, curse and damage and destruction? Do we find our words generously coming out of a heart full of gratitude or do we find them being bitter and snappy and hard? So just... Think about that. I'll just drop that bomb and then keep going. Let me end with this. I need to end as the worship team comes. Look, the last point here I just want to make is there's a difference here. Paul says, God gives you seed to sow and he gives you bread to eat in verse 10. I just want to, as a reminder, and I always like to try to remind people of this. Don't sow the bread that God gave you to eat and don't eat the seeds God gave you to sow. Know the difference. God will provide things for you for you to spend on you and your family's needs because he is good and faithful and kind and he's promised to do so. But then he'll give you a bunch of stuff in your life that he plans on you sowing into what he's doing around you so his kingdom may come and his will may be done. But know the difference. Don't sow your bread and don't try to eat seed. But notice that he doesn't give you money. He gives you seeds. Just think about that. What if you thought about money as if they were seeds. Where are you sowing them? And what are they doing? Well, in the end, God is not wanting your money, nor is he just simply trying to protect you from greed. What he wants is for you and all of your life and resource and talents to be caught up in his unfolding plan because he knows he's created you to only be deeply satisfied when you're cooperating with him and what he's doing in the earth. So he calls us to live in a rationally giving lifestyle to the world, but out of a confidence in him. So our lives are caught up in God. We align our generosity with God's purpose, which is a pathway to a meaningful life. And then just let me end where I started. Do you notice how Paul addressed their hesitation of obedience? Again, he doesn't address it by telling them they have to obey. Don't you know God will be mad at you if you don't? He doesn't say, should I remind you who I am? He doesn't say, guys, let me tell you about all the good things I've done. I sent you a video. You can see all the things I accomplished over the last year. He doesn't do any of that, obviously. He says, You've, you sense God told you to give support. That's what you said. Now we're talking about obedience. Let me remind you of who God is and what God's like. He will be faithful to you. And your little gift will be caught up in God's unfolding plan. What would you stand with me? In our verse for the years, we're kind of diving into it is 
that we are all created for abundant life. John 10, 10, right? The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Would everybody just say abundantly? Abundantly, abundantly literally means to overflow. In other words, you, you don't, a cup is not full when the water's almost to the top. You know a cup is full when it's overflowing. It's really full when it's overflowing. What if you don't measure abundance by what you have? You measure abundance by what you've given away. You don't measure abundance by what you have. You measure by what you can give away. What overflows from your life, that's where abundance is measured. And if we are to find our abundance, we want to find our abundance in Christ and we want a life that's overflowing in generosity with our words, with our resources, with our time, uh, all out of a vision of who God is and what God is like. So as we respond, um, we have a prayer team in the back if you need anything you'd like prayer for. Maybe you are struggling with tithing. That'd be a thing to pray over. Maybe you're here and you need um, prayer over financial situations going on in your life. Maybe there's physical healing you need or other things like that. The prayer team will be in the back. There's also communion in the back because listen, this is very important to remind ourselves of God's self-giving and self-donating love. Do you think Jesus really walked in abundant life? Yes or no? Right, not a trick question. Yes, he did. And his abundant life was the kind of life that freely gave his life up for others. So when we take communion, we're reminding ourselves of that. The last thing is this week, we have a GP2RL. Would you mind putting that on the screen? Our GP2RL for this week is take time this week to evaluate where you are sowing your attention, your time, your energy, your money, and your talents another resource. If somebody was to look at just where you're sowing these things, what would they conclude is important to you? And just let God meet you there in his goodness. Well, we want to take a time to respond in, in worship. Hopefully what I've done is help you see a clear picture, or a clearer picture maybe, of how our vision of God connects with our generous heart. And our response should always be worship. The response to revelation is always worship. It's always worship. Later may come something else, but we receive revelation by first worshiping in response to it. So Father, we ask you for help. Would you clarify our vision of who you are and what you like? Will you take us deeper into trustful reliance on you? May we be a people marked by our confidence in your presence in our lives. And may our hearts overflow with irrationally giving lifestyles, radical generosity. And we will see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Holy Spirit, would you come and convince us as we worship, come and help us make much of Jesus. In Jesus' name, our only hope. Amen.